0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. So Ephesians chapter 6, our text will be verses 10 to 20. and We are concluding our series on the unseen forces, where we have been talking about angels, and then we began talking about demons. We were talking specifically about Satan the past couple of weeks and what his role is and what he does. And the fact that he is indeed a created being. He is not equal whatsoever with God. We understand that. He can only be at one place at one time. And Satan is at this moment, even now, a defeated foe. And that he is pretty much, as we have been talking about, he is on a leash, and his leash is tied to the foot of the cross. Satan can only do what God will allow him to do, and anything that Satan does anyway is still in conjunction with the sovereign will of God. A great example of that, of course, is with the crucifixion and how it was that Satan had at first tried to kill Christ as a as a child and how he tried to thwart the will of God by tempting Christ and then entering Judas and then having Judas to betray Him. And yet, in every one of those instances, he was only doing what God had predetermined and planned for him to do. We've seen also with his demonic forces, That they also were once angels, as Satan himself was. That they are indeed uh, less in number than the holy angels, as we read in Revelation 12, that Satan swept away a third of the stars of heaven, referencing the angels there. But that they are indeed bent on uh, attempting to thwart the will of God. That they are evil to their very core, the epitome of evil that they have influence in the world, at least with the unbelieving, uh, but that they are indeed terrified of their Creator. And this was so very important for us to discuss because you have some very interesting ideas that are out there concerning the atonement of Christ. One in particular by Joyce Meyer, for example, who would say that when Christ died, He literally went to hell And that the demons were jumping on him and pouncing upon him for three days until the Lord finally uh, had him to be resurrected. And that's just utter nonsense. Uh, There's nothing whatsoever true about any of that. uh, Or of the fact of Christ paying a penalty or paying a ransom to Satan himself or even the forces of evil. It diminishes the nature of the atonement. It diminishes the nature of what Christ had accomplished and the relationship between Christ and His creation. The atonement was made from Christ to the Father. Christ paid a ransom to the Father. It was not to Satan or any other created being. God sent Christ into the world to save us from His wrath. And Christ was our propitiation. He was our satisfaction. He satisfied the justice of His Father on the cross, not during the three days thereafter. And also it implies that Demons would be brave enough to try to harm Christ when every instance that we see of demons approaching Christ within the within the Gospels, they are utterly terrified of Him. Have you come to torment us before the time? Don't cast us into the abyss. Let us go into the swine. The demonic forces are terrified of Christ. So the idea of what Joyce Meyer is putting forth is just fanciful nonsense. And for many of the other prosperity gospel teachers that believe such things as well. We also learned that Satan, uh, as well as you know, as we've been talking about, is under the sovereign hand of God. We had instances that we looked at within the scripture that Satan has to have permission from God to do anything. He cannot act on his own volition. If he desires to do something, he has to ask his master. And this is true within Job. It's true within it was First Kings chapter 19. Satan had to have permission, and he can only obey. If the Lord tells him to do something, he has no other choice but obey. He is a created being and nothing more. Is He powerful? Absolutely. Is He the epitome of evil? Absolutely. Can He, can he tempt and can He do the, those things against the church and try to attack the church? Absolutely. But we have to be careful as well not to give Him too much credit. Because a lot of the times when our temptations come about, they're coming about from our own evil hearts and not from any outside source. And as we talked about before, uh, Satan's attack against the church is not that you lost your car keys and are late for work. Uh, you hear that often. Satan's been attacking this week. I lost my car keys and I couldn't find them, or my car wouldn't start, or something along that line. Satan, Satan, just trying to get me all riled up. Well, no, it's probably because you just don't have patience. <laughs> Could just be that. Maybe you need to develop more within the fruit of the Spirit and you can overcome them things. So we don't want to give Him too much credit because He is a dog on a leash and the one who's holding the leash is the Master. Should we fear Satan? No. Should we fear His demons? No. Because greater is He who is in Me than He that is in the world. The Scriptures affirm those great truths for us. And so today, what we are looking at is as we have come to understand Satan, as we come to understand his minions and their relationship towards the Lord, we need to know as well how to stand firm against the enemy. How to battle with the enemy. And I don't want to at all make us uh, think that he is nothing to worry about, because indeed he is. The scripture tells us that he is like a roaring lion lion seeking whom he may devour. So if we give Satan opportunity, then there are instances indeed where he or his minions uh it causes some great troubles within our lives. So we and we have to be on guard, absolutely. And here in Ephesians chapter six, we are told by the apostle Paul. How to be on guard. And we're going to look at some of the things that Satan tries to introduce and to attack the people of God with that we can be on guard against those specific things. So let's look at this text together. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse 10, and we'll read down to verse 20. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible Word of the living God. Let us hear the word of the living God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. to make known with boldness the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. And in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for this portion of Your Word. And we thank You for the great lessons that are there for us to, to be confident against the battle with the enemy. Father, I pray that indeed You would prepare our hearts and prepare us for the coming days. Uh, that we would not uh, waver in our trust and our faith in You and our confidence in You. That we would indeed stand firm. Father, I pray that You would bless the preaching of Your Word and that it would accomplish all You desire. For in Jesus' name we pray, and all the God's children say, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so here in Ephesians, Ephesians is a wonderful letter, by the way. It is a letter that is very doctrinal, very uh, very much like Romans. In fact, some call it the, the little Romans. Um, there are some wonderful truths that the Apostle Paul teaches in this epistle. Much of it in the very same vein as the others. He gives many instances of what it is that Christ has done for you, what Christ has accomplished, and then he gives, Now you do this. It's very similar to Romans. You have eleven chapters of Romans that teach us of the depravity of man, teaches of justification by faith alone, teaches of sanctification, of adoption, of perseverance, of the doctrine of election and predestination. And then by the time you get to chapter 12, after in light of all of the things that God has done, now chapter 12 begins, you, to the you rather, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And it's very similar here in Ephesians. You have the Apostle Paul going over many of the things that Christ has accomplished, the forgiveness of sins, election, redemption through His blood, and all of this. And then you get to chapter 4, Now, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then the rest of Ephesians is now giving instruction for the church. Actually, for the churches. This is one of the letters that was was supposed to be circulated among the other churches. Here in chapter 6, as he has already discussed the relationships of family, the relationships of slaves to their master, now he gets into the very end of how to combat the enemy. Here's what we do in order to uh, have success against the enemy. The armor of God. This would be very familiar to us. Uh, Perhaps we've seen a number of times depictions of the armor of God. What each piece means. He is obviously taken from the culture of the day. Looking at the Roman soldier himself and how he is prepared for battle. And using that to... Uh, show us as believers how we are to be prepared in the same way for the spiritual battle. You know, There are things that we need to understand when it comes to battling the enemy. One is, one thing that we don't do and that can definitely open us up uh, for some difficulties, is we don't want to be so enamored with the dark forces of evil that we become so much more attached to that and those subjects than we do the Word of God. We don't want to be so much astonished in this realm that we neglect the things that we should know and, and the, the teachings that we should gain to give us greater understanding of God Himself. When we have spiritual battles, our spiritual battle is not binding the devil. Our spiritual battle is not uh, trying to demolish certain demonic strongholds over a certain city or a certain town that the gospel would prevail. At a church that we used to go to before, uh, I remember we were at a particular ministry uh, function and we were in a circle and we were praying we were praying for the Lord to uh, work within the hearts of the people and stuff like that. And then somebody, uh, wanted to continue the prayer after that and was, was praying that the Lord would bind the enemy, that the enemy would have no foothold, uh, within this particular place. Folks, we need to understand something that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We are called nowhere within the scripture. To try to break some demonic stronghold over a city or a town as if it, we would have to do that for the gospel to be successful. It's the gospel that penetrates even the darkest hearts because God is the one who's doing it. If it was left up to us, perhaps we would have to do such things. And as far as binding Satan, here's the image. I can't help this. I was thinking of this the other day. As far as binding Satan, you know when you talk to, when you talk to folks that are more premillennial in their eschatology than than uh, others, and and you say to them, well, I think the binding of Satan already happened. Yeah, you know, I think it already happened in Christ's first coming. You know, and and this is my position. This is what I'm saying to them. And you know, Christ said in Matthew 12, He's already bound the strong man. You know, et cetera. Well, how can you think that Satan is bound? You know, and all this stuff that's going on in the world. Yet they don't mind to say every Sunday that we're binding the devil. I never understood that. But maybe that's something I need to ask at some point. Why is it you don't mind to bind the devil every other Sunday, but you have a problem with Christ binding the devil in the first coming? And this Bodhi Bachman had said, if everybody is binding Satan on Sunday, well, who's letting him loose that he has to be bound the next Sunday anyway? You get him, you need to hold on to him. Golly! Uh, make sure them chains are working. But we're never called to do that. We never find an instance in Scripture where we do that. Again, the instance in Scripture that you find of Satan being bound at any point is Christ. In Matthew 12, whenever Christ is casting out demons and they come to Him and they try to discredit Him, the religious leaders in front of the people, and they say, He's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Jesus says, well, how can a kingdom Satan's kingdom can't stand if Satan's casting out Satan Or how can one enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then he can plunder his goods. And he is in reference to Satan. He has power on earth to cast out demons because he is binding the strong man. And the language of Revelation 20, and this is a little footnote just because I need to understand a little bit better. The language of Revelation 20 of Satan being bound is very specific. He's bound in the sense that He can deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are done. After Christ is binding Him in His first coming, because the language of the Scripture is very clear. Hebrews chapter 2, that Christ has rendered Satan powerless. 1 John chapter 3, for this reason did the Son of God come into the world to destroy the works of the devil. He says in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 come back with good results from evangelism, Jesus says, I saw Satan falling as a star from heaven. And in John chapter 12, Jesus says, now the time has come for the ruler of this world to be cast down to be judged. That was all in His first coming. Everything that Christ accomplished on the cross had bound the devil in the sense that now when He ascended into heaven and He gives the command, now go forth into all nations and teach them and baptize them. All authority is given unto Me in heaven and earth. Before that time, the people of God was mainly confined to Israel until the ascension of Christ. Now the Gospel goes out to all the nations and Satan cannot hinder the progress of the Gospel. Even in the places where the church is being attacked the most, the church is still growing. Because Satan cannot stop what God is doing. In many of these other countries where these things are taking place, there's never an instance where the the people of God are trying to... Break any demonic stronghold. We're never to try to demand information from demons. Uh, None of that because we understand they are indeed uh, of their father the devil. They're uh, liars and and all of that. Uh, We're not to chase after them. We're not to try to perform exorcisms and things of that nature. I mean, there's times when uh, it may be that you encounter somebody. But what you don't do is is try to use your own strength in order to command a demon to leave, you're praying to the Lord. Lord, You're the only one that can do this. You have certain Baptist exorcists. exorcists. I can't remember that guy's name. Bob something. I was just reading about him the other day. Anyway, his big thing is he supposedly has cast out many demons and all of that. Um, We're not to... We're not called to do those things. And in fact, when you read in the Scriptures where it did happen, it's because somebody is bringing a person to Jesus with the exception of the Gerasene demoniac. You have the Apostle Paul that's walking around in a pagan city and having a woman who's possessed behind him walking behind him for three days. These men are from the Most High God. And finally, Paul gets annoyed and turns around and rebukes the demon out of the woman. That was more of a, a byproduct rather than his actual intention of going into the city to preach. There are things that we need to understand that we don't do. And we're not called to do. There is more emphasis in the Scripture of the people of God living a righteous life. There is more emphasis in the Scripture on your sanctification than it is about battling the enemy in these ways. We battle the enemy, the spiritual battle, and primarily the way that the enemy attacks, especially the people of God, is through false teaching. Heresy. Remember what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. Beware of seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And then he gives an example. People who forbid marriage and, forbid, and, and who, who advocate the abstaining of foods. Of certain foods. He says these things are aberrations of the truth because God has never commanded these things. And yet he refers to them in that way. Doctrines of demons and seducing spirits. In Second Corinthians, for example, when you read of uh, Satan being an angel of light and his ministers being uh, ministers of light as well, what is it that they're doing? They're teaching false, false doctrine. We're not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. Satan can appear an angel as an angel of light, so can his ministers. What about the Judaizers? The Judaizers were ones that the Apostle Paul battled a number of times. He spoke of them in Philippians. He speaks of them in Galatians. These are ones that were advocating a different Gospel. This is how the enemy tries to infiltrate the church as a whole is through false teaching. And you see that so much today. I mean, Just look around at the prosperity Gospel. Look at the things that they teach. See how they have a different Gospel. See how they have a different God altogether or a different Jesus and coming up with some of the most ridiculous things not only about what I mentioned before, but especially the prosperity Gospel teachers teaching that you are a little God. And you can manifest your own reality by the power of your words. Or even more grotesque, is Kenneth Copeland saying that because Christ was the first born-again man and He's a born-again man, that He could have defeated the devil in the same way that Jesus did. You've got to be pretty far out there to say such things like that. But you think of how many people follow these, these teachers. Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, flow Dollar, Joel Osteen. These are prosperity gospel teachers, T.D. Jakes, that are teaching something that is contrary to the Scripture and how many people are following. This is the primary way that the enemy attacks. And this is why we have to have the armor of God and the very first thing that he says concerning the armor of God is having your loins girded with truth. What does he say, though? Let me back up. What is it that he says to the people of God before he even into this? Stand firm. Stand firm and resist. You want to know how to battle the enemy? Stand firm and resist. And the first thing that he goes into as far as the armor itself, having your loins girded with truth. You know, Roman soldiers, of course, they would have their belts. Uh, They would have a strap that would go from the front to the back that they could hook their sword on. All of that. It was a vital piece of their armor. And he says, put on the belt of truth. Truthfulness. Sincerity. The first part of our armor that we use in order to to battle the enemy is truth. And the only truth that we have against the enemy is the truth that is contained in the Scripture. So when heresy begins to come at you or false teaching in some other variety, or I mean, we have all the Christian cults as well. I mean, you just take your pick. So when these things begin to come at you, you are girded with truth. You know the truth of God. You don't have to guess is this true or is this not true because it is the responsibility of all the people of God to study the Word of God that you can know and see the counterfeit. You would know it from the very beginning. I don't necessarily have to study every cult or every other aberration of true Christianity or orthodox Christianity. I need to know what the Scripture actually says concerning who God says that He is and what Christ has done on behalf of sinners and what God requires of me. These are the things that I need to know. That you need to know. So when the counterfeit comes, I can know automatically that is not what the Scripture tells me. That is not who God presents Himself to be. As one of those prosperity teachers says, well, to me, God is like the genie in Aladdin. Or to diminish the sovereignty of God and the power of God to say something as ignorant as prayer gives God permission to act on earth. Or something is ignorant as well from Kenneth Copeland that God had handed dominion over to Adam and Eve. And because they sinned, all the dominion went over to Satan. And now God is on the outside looking in trying to figure out a way to get back to have access to earth. And so He enters into a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham accepts His covenant And so that allowed God once again access to the earth and for man to have access to Him. And how ridiculous is that? That the Lord hands dominion over to Satan? God has all dominion and all authority and He has always had it from the very beginning. When you think of the Scripture itself and the things that the Scripture tells us, that from the foundation of the world, Christ is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That the plan was already in place before He ever made the first speck of dirt. This is what we're going to do. And the fall of man was not an accident. It was not something that caught God off guard. It was decreed by the sovereign God. We need to be girded with truth. God's truth. Not our own truth. Not what we perceive God to be. It doesn't matter what we think God or how God is or what we would like to conceive of God. It only matters what God says about Himself. A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he says in the very first couple of pages of that book, which is a really good book by the way, that what a church believes about God really defines that church. If they have a shallow view of God, they're going to have shallow worship. They're going to have a shallow view of Christianity as a whole. What a view! What a church views about God is the most important thing about it. That's what A.W. told us Where does that come from? It comes from the Word of God. Having your... Loins girded with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Of course, the breastplate being a, a piece of metal, of course, that's formed to the uh, to the person. It guards the vital areas from the neck to the top of the thighs, guards the heart, guards the vital organs, and many times within the scripture you, you find the the Old Testament especially using the, the language of bowels, your bowels, talking about your emotions in your heart, the center of your thinking, that the breastplate of righteousness is to guard those areas of how you think and how you respond emotionally. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. The basis of our righteousness is of course not our own doing, but the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us through faith. That is the basis of our righteous living. It guards us against Uh, having stray emotions, which is very prevalent today in the church. you got to have the right kind of atmosphere, the right kind of music, the right kind of lessons. All the people can feel good uh, about coming to this place that they can leave with this emotional high thinking, wow! That was an amazing experience. And that's how it's viewed today. It's not called worship. It's called an experience. We don't come here for experiences. We come here to offer the praise of our lips to our holy God, Because He's worthy regardless of how you feel. And how I feel. And if we were to remember, simply remember, the great things that God has done for us in Christ. Of giving His life as a ransom for our salvation. Of remembering that God is holy. Some of all the divine attributes wrapped up in His holiness. His otherness. And that this God who is the epitome of purity chose to save those that were in rebellion against Him. He condescended and entered into a relationship with us. And you have the Lord of glory, Christ Himself, who is fully God, who adds humanity to His being to become a man and carry out all that He did. If we were just to think of those those wonderful truths and the fact of our salvation being a result not of our own doing, but all of His, that regardless of our circumstances, we can come in here and say, all praise be to You. For who am I in light of Your holiness that You have made me a child of God because of Christ? If we would yet just think that way, then regardless of how our week has been, we can still come in here with a thankful heart and to give God the praise that He so rightfully deserves. This breastplate, breastplate of righteousness is speaking of our progressive sanctification, our growth in Christ, that if we have this armor on and we are girded with truth and we are remembering the truth of God, that we are progressing in our sanctification in our growth. It guards against nominalism. Nominalism You think of a good example would be I'm saved, but my lifestyle don't matter. I claim to be a believer, but I live as an atheist. Or situationalism. I can flex God's Word when I need to. To be whatever I need it to be. Being girded with truth and having as the basis of your righteousness the righteousness of Christ and remembering all of those things and trying to progress and growth in Christ is going to guard from these things. It's going to guard your heart, your mind, your emotions. We want people to have emotions, by the way. But we want your emotions to be engaged based on truth. not Not engaged because of a certain atmosphere that is created for you. We have our... Self-girded with truth. He put on the breastplate of righteousness. And he says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The footwear of the Romans. The Roman footwear was a thick-soled, hobnailed semi-boot that was held on, of course, by leather straps. But it had on the very bottom of it pieces of metal that would go through in order to give them a firmer stance as they were engaged in battle, almost like fleets. And the Apostle Paul says here that we have our feet shod with the preparation of the Gospel of peace. It's very difficult to battle against the enemy if you don't even know and have the assurance that you have peace with God. You don't have the assurance of the Gospel itself. To know and to remember and, and not to forget that Christ made peace for me. Christ He brought the, He brought He took away the enmity that was between me and God. And I know that according to the gospel that I have I have all my faith and confidence in everything that He did not in anything that I'm doing or have done, but I have all my confidence of my salvation in the God-man who lived the perfect life, who satisfied the justice of the Father in my place, and I'm committing all of my life and my being to Him, I know I have peace with God because my hope is in Him. If you have that as the basis of of your your, you know, your, your Christian character, the basis of your, your Christianity itself because that's the essence of Christianity. That you are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. And as I engage in battle, regardless of how the battle seems to be going in my life, I know that I have peace with God. And though it seems at times that we may be losing the battle or we may be overcome, it seems. I love what Spurgeon says. One man with God is in the majority. I can continue to fight regardless of how weary I get because it's going to be God's strength that keeps supplying all that is needed to keep fighting and keep my feet planted firm knowing that I have believed the Gospel. Knowing that Christ is mine and I am His and that He has made peace with God. On my behalf. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Shield of faith. You know, this isn't one of those small shields that, that attaches to your arm, you know, it's just this little circle kind of deal. This is a four and a half by two and a half big rectangle shield. Sometimes it's made out of metal, sometimes it's made out of leather leather that is coated in order to extinguish the the fiery um, pitch of the arrows. Of course, with a metal shield, it would deflect the arrows anyway. We are to take up this shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You think of this. One, let's talk about faith. Something about faith. Faith is granted to us. Faith is not originating within ourselves. And faith is not simply agreeing to the facts of the Gospel. But faith is agreeing to those facts and committing our life to those things and it's shown by action. As we remember the great truths of the the Gospel and of the Scripture, you, you hear this all the time. People say, well, just trust God is trust in God. Well, what does that even look like? What does it mean to trust God? In my time of difficulty, You know, give me something more that I can understand what that means. To trust God. Cast all your care upon God. Well, very simply, it means read the Word of God and believe it. Read the Word of God and believe it so that when the arrows of the evil one start to come at you in various ways, whether it's through persecutions or trials or whatever, that you have in your mind, you have settled in your mind, that my God is on my side. I have all faith and confidence and assurance in Him. And I'm not going to doubt that God loves me. I'm not going to doubt that He is not working in my life. I have the utmost confidence he indeed is because He is the Sovereign One. His, his Word says that He is sovereign. His Word tells me that He works all things after the counsel of His will. His Word tells me that He works all things for good to those that love Him. He tells me in His Word that He has declared the end from the beginning saying, My counsel will stand and I will do all My good pleasure. The Lord has said that He does whatever He pleases in heaven and on earth and none can thwart His hand. I trust that God knows exactly what He is doing. And as he says to Job, or as Job says, rather, the Lord performs that which is appointed for me. And as Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that will come upon you for the testing of your faith as if some strange thing happened to you. You know it's coming. Scripture has told you such that you have confidence in God. And even in those moments, I love what the apostle Paul said. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is, not, this is not a suggestion. This is a command by the Apostle Paul. And you know why you can? Because you have all confidence in Him. He's God. He has planned everything. He knows what He's doing. And He has called me to be faithful. And so I'm going to withstand whatever the enemy throws. My shield is the Lord. In His Word. It's my sword as well, isn't it? We'll get to that in a moment. And he says, and take up the helmet of salvation. <clears throat> the helmet, of course, it could be made out of cast metal. It could be made out of leather with uh, pieces of metal. Obviously to protect the soldier's head uh, when it comes to uh, arrows. But the main, the main uh, function of the helmet was to... To help withstand the blows to the head from a broadsword, it protected his head from. You've seen a broadsword. This is the very long sword that you'd have to hold with two hands, and the soldier would have to take it up over his head and try to crack down on the enemy. The helmet of salvation is guarding us uh, from the broadsword of the enemy. It reminds us of our salvation. It's very important too to understand this that you don't just put on these all these armor, all this armor, then later on you decide to bring in salvation. You know, we think to ourselves, why is it that he has the whole idea of salvation there towards the end as he explains the armor? But he's not talking about the initial stages of salvation. If you're putting on the armor of God, the implication is, is that you already are converted. But what it is referring to is that the helmet of salvation, again, in reference to how the Scripture uses the language of being saved. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. That It encompasses all the aspects of your salvation, your justification, your sanctification, and your glorification. It is a reminder of God's continued work in your life and having full confidence of the hope that is yet to come of the finality of our salvation and the culmination of our salvation in the great blessing of being glorified in Christ. As we remember what is yet to come and we're looking forward to that hope, as the apostle Paul says in Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day, to the finality of our salvation, to eternity. And that guards us against the enemy. It keeps us from being in despair and utter hopelessness. But we have a hope that is in Christ that will never waver if we keep our minds focused. This is our helmet of salvation. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now the sword of the Spirit, the Scripture, this particular sword that a soldier would be equipped with, it's not a broad sword. It's in the Greek called makaira. It is a short sword. and It was used for precision fighting. That's the kind of sword that the people of God have. We don't just have this big broad sword that we just wave violently hoping that we hit something. We have a sword that is for precision fighting that we can fight a very precise figure. That our attacks will be precise. And it is the Word of God. The Word of God is your sword against the enemy. When the enemy whispers something in your ear, what is it you're fighting back with? The truth of God. Going back to the belt of truth, isn't it? These are overlapping, of course. Just as Jesus himself did whenever he was tempted by the devil. What did Jesus do? He quoted back the scripture. That was his way of rebuking the devil, rebuking Satan. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. If we are equipped with the sword of the Spirit, we are equipped with the Scriptures, and in the sense of being equipped, we're not just necessarily, you know, just holding it and trying to do something with it. That's nonsense. But that we're knowing it. And we're reading it. We're studying it. We're digging out all the truths that are there that I can prepare myself for what is yet to come. And the enemy attacks and he says, as he did to Adam and Eve, did God really say that? Yes, He did. Surely God didn't mean that. Well, He did. He said it right. I have an example here too. When somebody tries to thwart you off of of true doctrine again. What are you using? You're using the sword of the Spirit. Didn't it say somewhere that that Jesus was God's literal son? Nope, Or sure didn't. Didn't it say somewhere that, that Christ was the first creation of God? Nope, never said that either. Isn't hell just you really use as a metaphor for the for the grave? Like there's really not a place of torment. Nope, that's not how Jesus used it. you really believe that there was this Noah guy who built a boat? Yep, because even Jesus affirmed the truth of that account. When the enemy tries to prevail against us with false doctrine, being equipped with the Word of God is how we fight that. But that's not all. Usually we'll kind of stop there with the armor of God. But you can't neglect this next, this next thing. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Prayer. And prayer is not necessarily just a time for you to come before God and say, I need, I need, I need. It is a time for you to have communion with God as you are reflecting upon His majesty, His splendor, His glory. You're you're speaking of Him and and how awesome that He really is. Then you can get to these other things. But it is a vital part in the battle. Absolutely. You know, when you think of the Psalms, and you think of some of the great prayers that you find within the Scripture, what is it that the person did first? They acknowledge the holiness and majesty of God before they ever bring up anything in their own life. We need to have prayer, but we need to have right prayer. As uh, John Piper says, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. It is your wartime walkie-talkie. Every Sunday, we read out of a psalm. Every Sunday, we're reading of some kind of a situation, perhaps. Except with some of the psalms that are more praise and thanks and all of that, you have a lot of psalms of lament that dominate the Psalter more so than the others. But they are consistently coming before God in their time of need. Acknowledging the, the splendor of God And saying, God, only you can do this, only you can act. Lord, work on our behalf and help us. Just as we did this morning. And that is a great example to us today of how we ought to be praying. Prayer is vital. It's vital regardless of how your life is going, whether good or bad. Prayer is something that needs to take place in your life, not just whenever you have a meal. To be quite honest with you, and one thing that I kind of stopped doing with my own family, except on certain occasions, is to pray over our food. I've almost stopped doing that, and the only reason that I've stopped doing it is because I don't want it to be just something that you do before you eat. I want prayer to be something that is meaningful to our family. And not just something you recite before you begin to feed your faith. Now everybody, knows that's just my personal conviction. That's not that's to say anything of anybody else and how you do that. Uh, it doesn't, uh, of course, go across the board to anybody. is just me. I didn't want it to be just a ritual. I want it to be something that is meaningful every time that we come before God in prayer. Because it should be. So here's some things that the enemy, other things that the enemy can attack with. Some of these things that we've talked about already, but this, these things are how we react. Sensualism, the attractiveness and desirability of the church have replaced God's word as our standard for determining what is best in our life. There's a lot of isms here, by the way. Sensationalism. That I believe that immediate success is more desirable than success in God's time. So I'm not continuing on in my life how I ought to. The enemy has me focused in over here to try to gain success even quicker and by any means necessary. You have other ways that the enemy tries to attack the people of God by... Substituting human reason for a childlike faith anchored in the Word of God. I'm going to try to use my human reason rather than believing what the Scripture tells me. This isn't to say that you have a blind faith by, by any means because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We have a true faith, a faith that can be uh, given as far as proof It's not a blind faith. We don't have our feet planted firm in midair hoping that these things are true. But when it comes to using your human reason to try to understand things, such as the Incarnation, for example, how is it that you have this little baby that's looking up at the stars that He created and yet He's a baby, but He's fully God? How can that be? Look, I created that one and that one and that one. How can that be? How can it be that even... Uh, in the conception of Jesus. How could that happen? It is. How about the trying nature of God? Because this is a, this is a place where human reason has veered off in many her, uh, heresies throughout the centuries of the church. Arianism. In the fourth century by the heretic... Arius, sabellianism You may not know these terms, but I guarantee you know the outcome of them. The Jehovah's Witness, what they believe is nothing new. They're believing exactly what Arius taught in the fourth century. Oneness Pentecostalism, that there is no Trinity, that there's only one God who manifests himself in a variety of ways. This isn't new. Because that's exactly what third-century Sibelius taught. What is it that they tried to do? They tried to use their human reason to try to understand the infinite. They came up with all kinds of wacky ideas about the dual nature of Christ. How is it that Christ can be fully God and fully man? How can that be? And yet, in his in his deity, he retains. All the properties of what it is to be God. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's ever-present. And yet in His humanity, He can get tired. He needs to eat. There are times that He doesn't know something. There are times Jesus can say, I don't know. And in His humanity, He's telling the truth. Unless it's communicated by the, the divine nature, He can honestly say, I don't know. How can that be? There are things that are in the Scripture that are great mysteries to be sure. i trying to use our human reason instead of believing what God has said because He's trustworthy in every other place and aspect in our lives. We're going to fall into some terrible, terrible ideas. The enemy can get us off track with thinking that I'm the master of my own life and the captain of my own soul. There's nothing godly about that. There's nothing godly about the idea that I'm looking out for number one. There's nothing honorable how people fall into this trap called illusionism. I believe that everything that appears or claims to be of God is of God without further investigation. Just because somebody says it's of God, I'm just automatically going to believe it's of God. And not test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. I'm just going to believe it because somebody told me. Regardless of the fact that it mirrors nothing within the Scripture, I'm just going to believe it. Ecumenism. You believe that all religions, if they're sincere, are valid expressions of worshiping the true God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other. And, not, and let me say this too, because if you listen to Ravi Zacharias, he makes uh, some very good points in these particular areas. People often say that all religions are basically the same and, and superficially different, but it's quite opposite. All religions are not the same. They are fundamentally different and at best superficially similar. They disagree on the person of God, of Christ, of salvation, of heaven, of hell, of eternity, of salvation. I mean, these are vital aspects of of religion that needs to be examined. There is one mediator. You take the big three for example. Most of the Eastern Indian philosophies of Hinduism and Buddhism and some of those, they believe that God is impersonal and He's not a personal being and all of that. So they end up having some difficulties anyway of how can an impersonal force produce personal beings with a will and a mind. That doesn't make any sense. And not only that, but it doesn't give you the basis of human dignity, of value, of morals, or any of those things. But you take the big three monotheistic religions of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. All three affirm that God is love. All three affirm that God is just. All of that. And yet only one of them can answer the question, how can God be just and justify sinners? Islam, you got an angel on this side and an angel on this side. One records your good deeds. One records your bad deeds. On the day of judgment, Allah's going to pull out the scales. If your good outweighs your bad, then you get to go to heaven. If not, you're going to hell. There's no justice in that. I'm going to let you, an imperfect being, into my perfect heaven. Same thing with Judaism. It's a works righteousness type of salvation of hoping that God will be merciful. The only one that can answer the question how can God be just and justify sinners is Christianity because it's the God-man who carried out all that was required by the Father on behalf of sinners. That God can be just and justify sinners. There are many others, of course, that the enemy uses to try to uh, veer us off. And of course, works righteousness is a big one. But when we have the armor of God that we are equipped with, the truth of God, and remembering and having the assurance that we have... Uh, And what God has actually said, believing these things, that we can indeed withstand the battle. Demonic forces are real. And like we've talked about before, people think that Satan rules in, in hell or some other kind of thing, or that there's all these kind of demons in hell that will torture you until the day of judgment. No. The only demons that are in hell are the ones that are kept in chains awaiting their judgment. Every other demon is here on the earth. And they are active. They are at work. But interestingly, the scripture doesn't keep emphasizing us, the presence of demons on earth. It keeps emphasizing us, to us, and for us, your sanctification. You want to combat the enemy? You've got to have the Word of God. You've got to grow in the Word of God. You've got to believe the Word of God. But we will stop there. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank You for the mercy and grace that we have received in Christ Jesus. We thank You for Your Word, which is true. It doesn't just contain truth. It is truth. Our Lord Jesus prayed on our behalf unto You, Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. We thank You, Father all that You have revealed to us about Yourself through the pages of Scripture, that we can have a firm grasp on who You are, on what Christ has done, on who Christ is, and what You require of us as much as our finite minds can understand. We thank You that You didn't leave us out in the dark, that You have given us the light of Scripture to guide us through this life. We pray, Father, that we would indeed be Standing firm against all the schemes of the devil, not falling into any trap, because we are equipped with Your Word and Your truth. Help us to be mindful of our need to study and to read and to learn, that we would be better servants for You. Thank You again for all that Christ has done for us. Thank You for Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all we got, children, say.